Uh, have you ever heard of someone getting married for their spouse's money? <laughs> they call them a gold digger. I think that's the term, not very positive. Or someone who gets married so that their, sp- their spouse could be a citizen of the United States. So they're, they're looking for that, that citizenship. Uh, I have a friend who, who, actually I have two friends who got married and later realized that it probably was not good motives. They got married for that citizenship. Very hurtful and difficult. Come to think of it, I have wondered if, if Jenny maybe married me for that pastor money that uh, was flowing. <laughs> I kid, I kid, Jenny. All right, but marrying for money, that is a real thing. That happens. And people do actually marry for sister. Those are things. And I'm using this as an example, and it's not a one for one. So don't, like, don't read in this too much because there's some covenants of marriage and, and covenants with. Um, but what we're talking about in Romans chapter 3. It, it stems out of Romans chapter 2 at the end. And so JC talked about that last week, but Paul, he's just continuing this argument, and we have to go back and look at that. And the argument that Paul is making prior to this is he says, he says, listen, there were some people who are doing some things, you Jews are doing some things uh, for a benefit. You want, you want to get a result. And so you're being circumcised, you're following certain parts of the law and commands of God, Jewish things, uh, but your heart isn't really for me. Um, and then there's some people who, who, who are not under this, this law, but actually their heart is for me. And so this is, this is, this is what he says, uh, Romans 2, 20 and 29. He says, for a person is not a Jew who's one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who's one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. Okay, so if we're, if we're going to think about this, like the marriage terms, what he's saying is just putting your name on a piece of paper uh, you're trying to get the benefits of marriage. You're trying to get like all the things. Like you're following the letter of the law, but like let's say that that, that marriage, it's like they don't stay in the same room together. They work opposite, opposite shifts. They have different friend groups. Like everything is different. It's like you'd look at that and you'd say, that's not really a marriage. Like that's not, that's not how marriage is supposed to be. Um, whereas somebody who's like, hey, they're getting ready to get married and they have like, they love each other. Like, they hang out together. They, they sacrifice for one another. You'd be like, that's, what, that's a little bit of what marriage is supposed to be like. Their hearts are for one another. And the argument that Paul is making, he's saying, he's saying, what God wants is on the inside. It's not this, this set of rules because you can't even follow the set of rules that you think you can and your heart is not for them. You're just trying to do the, the letter of the law without actually understanding the heart of the law. And so to the Jews, this was a very, very difficult thing to hear. They're saying your faith is invalid. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying you are, who you, th- you, you, you are different than who you think you are. Uh, and I think that's about one of the most offensive things someone could say to someone else. Like, he, like no, you, like you don't know God. You don't understand God. Uh, and so it, it is offensive. And so he, he prepares, and so he says this, and then he says, and then he starts to build his argument. And so in Romans, he's building this, this whole thing that, that really we can't ever be good enough, that it's always going to be um, by God's grace through faith. But we're just taking sections of Romans, so we're, we're going to look at these next eight verses. Uh, what is Paul trying to communicate to these people uh, that they would understand, like that they would, what part of God do they, do they need to understand as he continues to put these blocks, these building blocks up to understand that it's only through Christ, that he is our only hope. And, and what he's building is, is this simple idea that, that God is always fair. Uh, God is and always will be fair, and sin is always wrong. That's the simple idea. Uh, I got those, those two simple points uh, from Kevin DeYoung. He had a great message on this, but just this idea is just simple. It's like, what is, God, what is he trying to communicate here? God's always fair. Sin is always wrong. And so uh, this was an easy outline for me as a, as a pastor because he asked four questions. So we're just going to re-ask those four questions and look at how he answers them. Uh, 
So what are the four questions in the text? The first question is in verse 1. It says, so what advantage does the Jew have? Or what's the benefit of circumcision? That, that literally is just verse 1. Uh, the next few questions, they need more interpretation. I bet as you read this, you're like, I don't understand what he's saying, because I had to read this a lot of times. And then I was like, I'm still not sure, and I read some commentaries. And then I, it took some navigating for me to, to work through this. So what are the other questions? The second question, if some Jews were unfaithful, is it right for God to be unfaithful to us? Does that make God right? Like, can he be unfaithful to us? Third question, if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, how is it fair for God to judge me? So when I sin, it shows that God's a good judge. How, how then can God judge me? He shouldn't be able to judge me. Fourth question, if my sin shows God as holy and glorious, shouldn't I sin more? <laughs> uh, and so God's always fair, sin's always wrong, and we're going to talk about that. But as people, we flip this around. What we say is, uh, God's wrong. How could God judge me? Like, 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 I can't believe this is how it is. And, and, I, and I'm actually like pretty good. Like, I'm good, and God's wrong. Like, this is, this is how we think about it. I'm the fair one, but God is always fair. Sin is always wrong. And um, we make justifications for sin. We, we, try to, um, we try to find ways out when we sin. And, we, and it could be through pride. It could be through blaming other people. And this is, this is in us. It's been in us forever. Uh, I think about Proverbs 18. 1870 says, The first to state his case seems right until another comes and cross-examines him or until another comes and states his case. And that, that passage, that verse is very helpful uh, in a couple of senses. One, for me to remember that I always think I'm right, uh, and I should try to maybe think about other people's position, or maybe what God has to say. So there's, there's, a, there's a, a part of me that's like, this is me. But then also, as I hear people go through things, I have to always put it through this filter, or I try to, of like, they think they're right, and they might be right, but there's probably some more to this that I want to understand, that like, that that there's, there's more underlying here. And so I want to hear more of it. But we see this in scripture. So um, this, this like self-justification, this happens in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. When they sin, they rebel against God. And then when God comes to Adam, what does Adam say? He says, uh, it was Eve's fault. Like she told me. And then, he, and then he says, and you gave me Eve. It's your fault, God. Uh, it was not a good moment for him. Uh, we do that too. Like, God, how could you put me in this position? How could you allow this thing to happen? Or, um, and so it's, it's all throughout scripture. Or we just, we don't see our sin in the moment we're doing it or as it really is. Uh, someone we saw do this strongly, uh, poorly, King David. And I want to talk about this story because uh, the response to what King David does gets quoted here in Psalm 51. So David gets confronted and then his response is, is here. So we're going to look at that. So what, what happened with King David? King David, he didn't see himself rightly. So it starts out and says, when kings were out, going out to war, David stayed home. So now all the fighting men are gone. And it seems like they're saying he should be in war too. When kings go out to war, David stayed back. So he's not doing what God wants him to do. And he gets himself in trouble and he sleeps at Bathsheba. So he sleeps and Bathsheba was married. So then he, she says, hey, I'm pregnant. He's like, oh, uh, so he calls Uriah back, not to, not to confess his sin, but to cover it up. So he tries to cover it up, but Uriah, the good man that he is, the honorable man that he is, he won't sleep with Bathsheba. He's like, I can't sleep with my wife, it's his wife, while my brothers are at war. And so David sends him back and has him killed in war. So like, has the troops come back and has um, Uriah and some men around him die in battle. He basically murders him um, to cover up his own sin. But there's no indication that he really knows what he's doing is wrong. At least that he's 
remorseful of it. And so we come to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and this is what it says. The Lord sent Nathan to David. So Nathan's a prophet. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking uh, one of his own sheep or cattle, prepared the meal for the traveler that had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man. He said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Honorable response. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. This is what the Lord said. The God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And had this been too little, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what was evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite, the sword, and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. So David's so mad. He's like, oh, how could that guy do that thing? He should die. Oh, at least he's got to pay four times. Maybe he pays four times, and then he dies. Um, But then he gets blindsided. Oh, that's me. Someone had to point it out. Someone had to help him to see that he was sinful, that he was wrong, that he had violated uh, what God had called him to. And God says, I could have given you more, but you don't even need more. This was enough. This was in you anyway. Uh, And the reason that I share that story, well, we're going to come back to it. Um, But what you have to know about Israel is that Israel thought uh, that they were not lawbreakers. They thought that God's not going to judge us. He's just going to judge the Gentiles. But what we see here is that that God will judge everyone. He even judges David. We're going to come back to that idea. But Paul, he doesn't see. He doesn't see until it gets pointed out to him uh, that God was fair and he was wrong. So let's look at these. Let's look at some of these examples of how Paul's trying to explain this to them, that, that, that for the Jews, in their sin, that they're wrong. Their sin is always wrong, and that God will always be fair. So first, what advantage does a Jew have? What benefit is circumcision? Uh, so he's, so they've, he's said that the circumcision is of the heart, and they're like, well, then what are all these years of following God for? What, what is like, all of this pattern of life that you've taught us? What, are all, what is the Mosaic covenant to us? Like, how does all of this work? And I can sympathize with them when I think about their history. Think about how God has used Israel to this point. Like, he's chosen them. They, they have lived differently than other nations, predominantly. They've made some mistakes. They've made a lot of mistakes. But like, uh, again and again, he uses this little group of people to defeat bigger kings. He, uh, when they're enslaved in Egypt, he miraculously saves them out of Egypt. So they know they're chosen because they've got this pillar of, they've got fire and smoke and they have, they have like all this awesome things. They cross the Red Sea it's like God has been their God. They have experienced it. Their ancestry has experienced it. And if we're going to jump ahead, uh, not, not now, but later, we're going to look at Romans 9. And he explains some of these benefits. Like it, it's, it's kind of the point of emphasis. But I, I can see where it's like, God, you did all these things, and then you gave us the law. So after we're, we're, we've escaped from Egypt and we're in the desert, you, 
um, Moses goes up on the mountain, and, and then there's like this, this smoke around the mountain. And then the, even the people, they hear God speak. And so Moses, he writes down the law. And so they have the law. They have instructions about how to worship God. They have guidance about what God is like and, and, and who he is. So all of these things have happened to them. Um, and so they're thinking, this is God's going to be our salvation. Uh, all these things are leading to this thing. But now Paul says, I, but, you, but you didn't, you're doing some of the things, but, but you don't have the heart. And so their question is, is if these things don't lead to salvation, is there really any benefit? That, I would say that's another way to ask their question. If it doesn't lead to salvation, do all this, these things in history have any benefit? To which he says, yes. <laughs> yeah, you, there's tons of benefit. I'm going to get to it later. He doesn't say that, but he does get to it later. I'll give you one. I'll start with this one. Uh, and this is verse 2. He says, it's considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the word of God. What's the benefit? You've got the word of God. You have the ability to hear from God, for God to speak to you and for you to know him. Uh, different than any other nation. No other people has what you have and have experienced God in the way that you've experienced God. And so, so what is your advantage? Hearing from God. Knowing about God. Uh, it's not a disadvantage, it's an advantage. Now, just because they were not immediately saved by those words, it didn't discount that that was a benefit for them. So I think something that, that's helpful for us as we think about this is we have a desire to hear from God. I do. I'm sure you do. And sometimes we see in Scripture people have heard from God, like literally like Moses gets the law from hearing from God. Sometimes we have like premonitions, like I, I think this is like kind of where God's leading me. And maybe, maybe some reference in Scripture comes to you, and you're like, I think this is what, what God's trying to do. But I think all of us, we want to like literally hear from God. Like there's like a, 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 a deep desire in us, or maybe to have a dream. And God can work in that way. That, that's a possibility. But what I think is amazing and important to remember is that we have the word of God. Like even better than what, what they had then, than what they were experiencing. It's like we actually have the Bible. And so at any time, at any moment, you can, you can take out your Bible or you can pull out your phone and look at, you know, BibleGateway.com. Um, it's amazing. I was, this is kind of funny. This last week we were in, uh, we're at Unite. So we were the middle, I was with a group of middle schoolers. And uh, Steve and I, my co-leader, we reminded the kids, like, hey, remember, bring your Bibles. And we had to give that recommendation because some kids forgot their Bibles, mine included. <laughs> so it's like, all right, bring your swords. Here we go. Uh, and then one of, the, one of the boys said, I don't have a Bible. And then, it's probably wrong of me, I started to laugh. <laughs> I was like, you have a Bible. There's no way you don't have a Bible. And maybe he meant, like, I don't have my Bible. But uh, the average American home has four Bibles, uh, four Bibles in every home. Uh, more than that, actually. And I was thinking about my home. I, I was tempted to go count. I didn't. But I bet we have 25 Bibles. I, I think we, I mean, we have Bibles all over the house. Um, we're so holy. We're just, we're just reading them all the time. It's, 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 um, no. But we have, well, I have a lot of kids, but I don't have 25 kids. We just, the point is that we, the Word of God is available to us. We can look to God at any moment, and, and we should not discount how huge that is, that God can speak to us. And he wants, actually, he does speak to us through his Word. In every area of life. Second uh, Peter 1, it says his divine power, verse 3, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and goodness. He's given us everything we need uh, for all of life. So every aspect, you're like, what about this, lad? Like, you know, is this, and it may not say like the exact phrase, God wants you to, and then put it in there. Um, 
but, but we have in every aspect of life, God is speaking into it. How? Well, by the knowledge of him who calls by knowledge of him who calls his own glory and goodness, by these he's given us very great and precious promises. So in them you can participate in the divine nature, escaping the corruption of the world because of evil desire. So he's given us his, his promise. He says, like, not just I have your word, but I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna do these things, and you can count on it, you can bank on it. And so God's promises that are known to us, and we have everything we need for life and godliness. God is fair towards us, and he was fair to the Jews. He was fair to them in that he, he, he did all these other things, but also he gave them his word that they would know him. Now, if I was to modernize this question, I might ask something like this. Uh, if I'm not guaranteed to be a Christian by going to church, why should I go to church? If, if coming here isn't salvation, why do I come? And we probably should do like a long series on that question. Uh, but, but for now, uh, because there are tremendous benefits of coming to church. There are, there are more than I can list, being a part of the body of God, hearing from the word of God, being able to participate in the one another command, showing supernaturally what the body of God is supposed to be, all these things. Um, there are so many benefits of being here, but being in church is not salvation. And so I want to task, ask this question uh, and pose it more towards parents. Uh, what, what benefit is it to, for me and my family and to bring my kids to church? And I I ask that because I think that this slips into me a little bit, and no one would say this out loud, but there's sort of like this underlying assumption that we can get into where life goes on to autopilot, and we say, if I go to church, and if I bring my kids to church, and if I bring them to small group, uh, then my kids are going to be Christians. They're just automatically going to get saved. Uh, And like it's a transaction. Like if I do this, then God has to do this. And that's just not the case. That's not how God works. That's not the, the reason you come to church. Now, that's part of the reason. Like, we do want our kids to come to know Christ, and they can, God will use the church to help with that. But what does God really want parents to do? He wants them to learn about God here, and talk about God here, and then talk about God at home, while they're walking, while they're sitting, while they're getting up from bed. Like, all the time, um, presenting the glory of God to their children. Knowing that each kid has to make their own choice, uh, and that... Uh, that God's going to give them that opportunity, but that, but that they have to actually walk into that. But it's not, a, it's not like it's a guarantee because they're here. They're going to come to faith in Christ. And so we want to get that out of our mind and just remember we have this responsibility to keep, keep glorifying God in our personal lives and then wherever we are. Now, if you're a kid and you're here and you're thinking, uh, I'm coming to church, but I'm not guaranteed to be a Christian. Why do my parents drag me to church? <laughs> Why do I have to come every week? And uh, so this is for you kids. If you're thinking that, you're here and you're, you're young, younger. Um, I, I want to tell you that I used to feel that way when I was a kid. I, uh, my parents, so grew up playing sports. My siblings played sports. And so there was a couple times, like probably less than five, when we had to leave church early. <laughs> so like we went to church. And then at some point we pieced out because we had to get to this event. And so, but from that, from a very young age, I remember that. And so every time at church, I don't know if every time, but often I'd ask my dad, like, hey, dad can we leave after communion today? <laughs> you know, like, can we sneak out the back again like we did that one time? To which my dad would say, no, of course not. So I didn't love going to church. There's some of it I did like, but I didn't love going to church. Um, and it still had great benefit for me. It taught me a lot of things. So there, there, I could go on, but what are some, what are some reasons that, that for you kids, like why is church helpful for you? What I, I want you to know is that, is that when you come to church, you get to learn about God for a foundation for your future. So... So you're building something that you don't even know. You're, like, it's being built in you that you don't even understand. 
You learn about what it's like to live by faith. So what is it, how does someone express their faith? You learn it here, one of the places. You learn that life's not about you. We all want to think life's about us. That's where we start. But church helps remember that life's about God. It starts there, and we are the beneficiary after that. Uh, fourth, that you're loved well by God's people. So I think when kids come to church, what they experience is that they are loved by this body. And so all of us can be like, yeah, I'm part of loving these kids that they would see God. But for kids, they are loved by God's people. And finally, maybe most important is you're protected from many evils of the world, from, from a lot of sin in the world. Uh, I do a lot of kids' ministry interviews so to work with kids in ministry. Like we just, we, we want to kind of know who's working with kids, go through a few questions. And one of them often is like, what was your experience growing up, which ties to church? And so I've heard so many people say, I, I left church not a Christian, but I'm thankful for this and for that and for this. Um, and I think about how God protected me here and did that for me. And then later they came to Christ. And the truth is, is that God is building something in you children, in all of us, but especially kids, uh, about worldview, about how, what's right and what's wrong. And so as you learn about what God teaches, I think you, you lessen the pressures from peers. Like, how should I look? How should I dress? How should I talk? I hope that's being learned here, not somewhere else. And then you're going to likely get pressure at some point. Should I drink? Should I do drugs? What does is, what is sexual morality look like? These things are being learned here. And so you have this great benefit of being in the church, not to mention salvation. <laughs> of course, salvation. But even without salvation, we have all these benefits that God brings here. And so is it a benefit to go to church, even if we're not necessarily saved while we're here? Yes, it is. And so was it a benefit for the Jews to be God's people, even if, even if circumcision or having the law didn't save them? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Okay, let's keep going. A little long on that. Second question that Paul poses. poses. Verse 3, he says, What then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true. Even though everyone is a liar, as it's written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. Rephrased, uh, if some Jews were unfaithful, is it right for God to be unfaithful to us? This is how they viewed God. So this is, this is not a truth statement. This is how they viewed God. Is that if, if we're unfaithful, then God shouldn't be unfaithful to us. Like, I thought he gave us all these promises. I thought we could, we could trust him. And so Paul, Paul poses that question. He says, is God unfaithful? Absolutely not. Not in a million years. Of course not. May it never be. That's not true. God is faithful. And so the Jews would be right if God were breaking promises towards them. If like, they had this set of promises and God was violating those promises. But they're misinterpreting what God is doing and what God has taught to them. In, in fact, it's all leading to what we're going to see at the end of, of Romans 3 that, um, about this fulfillment of the law in Christ. So he's building towards understanding this, but he's saying, God is not unfaithful. Yes, you did break the law, but actually your breaking of the law, if you look at the Mosaic Covenant, that means that you should be cursed, not blessed. God's remaining faithful, even though it feels like unfaithfulness. Um, and again, remember, they thought that Gentiles would be judged, but the, but the Jews will not. Like, we're going to receive this grace. And so that's why in Psalm 51, uh, as they talk about David, David writes this psalm, posts the stuff with Bathsheba. And there's, like, confession in there, and it's just like, it's this really cool psalm. But in that psalm, he talks about being judged. And he says, and this is what gets quoted now in Romans 3, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. So it says, God, may you be justified in your words. God, you are a triumph when you judge. 
In other words, you are right to judge me, a Jew. So Paul is saying, see, David knew that he should be judged. You look, yes, look up to him. You too have to know that you should be judged. It's right for God to judge you. He has integrity. He doesn't play favorites, meaning he judges Jew and Gentile. Neither are, are, will escape uh, the judgment of God. Um, and then he gives us this line, just for clarity's sake, what does he mean? He says, uh, he says, uh, let, every, let God be true, even though everyone is a liar. And what he means by that is, if the whole world says one thing, but God says something else, let's go with God. <laughs> like, the, all these people, they're not right. Like, God will always be right. He will always be true, even if it's confusing. And so God is fair to judge, even including the Jews, and sin is always wrong. And so I, I connected, a, there's like a thematic tie here, so this is not like, a, I don't think this would be the exact same question, but, but uh, when you're thinking about God's justice, we still question that today. And so what is a modern question that, that could relate if God is loving, how can he send good people to hell? So they, they were questioning the justice of God, the goodness of God. And this is important because if you are questioning the goodness of God, it'll be hard to worship him. It'll be hard to, like, get behind him. You know, or, like, he, he's making recommendations to your life, and you're like, no, 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 but you're not good. Like, I've experienced that you're not good, or I believe that in the future you're going to do things that are not good. And so we have to answer the question, is God really good? Is he really fair and just? And so one way that gets pushed in society today, and maybe just in you, you've asked this question. I hope you have. If God is loving, how can he send good people to hell? Well, the reality is if he didn't punish sin, he wouldn't be just. And if he's not just, then he's not good and he's not loving. So he has to actually punish sin. And we all, um, we all know that and experience that, that, that justice is actually a good thing. You know, we, last time I spoke, like three weeks ago, so we talked about moral relativism, meaning it, people think you believe what you believe and that's okay, and I believe what I believe and that's okay about all matters of life. Uh, and we believe that right up until someone wrongs us, you know, or until someone cuts you off in traffic and, and you know, you yell at them. You're like, no, 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 they're a bad driver. I'm absolutely right. It's like, now you know, you, have, you believe in some absolute truth, and that person should be punished. Now you're thinking, cut it off in traffic is not actually a punishable offense, but um, murder is. So should someone be punished for murdering someone else? Well, I would say yes, of course they should. And then that, that sense of injustice goes even higher when you think about, should someone be punished for murdering someone innocent, like a child? Certainly, of course. And so if God is going to be good, he, he also punishes injustice. He also punishes evil, and we call that evil sin. He will punish sin. And that actually is part of what makes him good. And so the, the, the premise of this question, how can God send good people to hell? The trick is, is that no one is good because everyone has sinned. And so he doesn't send any good people to hell. That, that, that does not happen. He sends people who, who are wicked and wrong him. There's no one good, no one righteous, not even one. We'll talk about that next week. And so I want to pair that, though, with this understanding. Is that God's desire? Like, did God create the world thinking, my goal is to send people to hell? Ezekiel 33, this is what it says. It says, Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, you have said this, our transgression and our sins are heavy on us. We're wasting away because of them. How, can we, how then can we survive? Tell them, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. This is God's heart. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But rather the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways, why will you die, house of Israel? 
That's God's heart. Repent. Please turn. Please. And then in 1 Timothy, so then jump to the New Testament. It says, God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. What's his heart? I want everyone to know Christ. Not a single person to be lost. I want every wicked person to come back. And so it, with God's justice, it's nice to think about and helpful to think about God's mercy. And, and how is God able to be merciful? Like, how can someone repent and turn back? Well, where is God's justice seen? Where is the wrath of God poured out and seen clearly to us? It's on Christ. God's justice is put on Christ. So what happens at the cross is that Jesus, he takes the wrath of God. And so I, 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 it's just helpful to put yourself in that position. Like, I should have died. And how should I have died? I should have just been killed. I should have, the wrath of God should have been poured out on me. But Jesus is the one the wrath of God's poured out on. So we can think about the cross, and you can personalize it. You can think, like, oh man, I deserve that. But then what, it, what happens is that then God offers his righteousness. Not just that Jesus takes my punishment, but actually he then gives me his righteousness. So when he was, it's very important that Jesus be born and be perfect so that he could be righteous to have something to pass on to us. And so we trade places. That's what happens at the cross, that we get the righteousness of God, but he takes the wrath and the punishment. And so God's justice is seen towards Christ. And it's also seen as someone who hasn't repented, hasn't put their faith in Christ, because then they're going to take that punishment. But God's desire has always been, will always be, that, that there would not even be the death of the wicked, that people would repent and turn to him. So Paul continues. His argument continues, verse 5. He says, but if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. If God, if, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? Okay, translation. If our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, how is it fair to God judge me? Because I'm bad, it shows that God is, is a good judge, then how can God judge me? Well, first thing you have to see here is that, uh, this is helpful, is that everyone at that time would have understood judgment. So I just leaned into judgment a little bit because for us, it's, it's like kind of cringy and it feels wrong. That's like the society, that's, I think that's where we kind of come to. But back then, Paul's saying, you all know God's going to judge. You Jews, you understand that God's going to, so like it's, it's, a, it's a baseline, God's going to judge. So everybody already assumes that. Um, and, then, and then they make this argument. So God's going to judge. Uh, our unrighteous highlights God's righteous. How is it fair for God to judge me? And this, this is kind of comical because it's a self-defeating argument. He's saying, uh, so I do bad and God judges me. So he shouldn't judge me for doing this thing that shows that he's good because he judges. You're like, wait a minute. But if God didn't judge you, he couldn't, he, he couldn't then show that he's a righteous judge. So if God has to judge someone. He's going to judge you. So their argument, it, it doesn't actually make sense. He can't thank you for sinning so that he can judge you, but then not judge you. Like, it, 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 the, whole, the whole world they've spun, it doesn't fit together. Uh, so sin does not, God being able to judge sin does not make us be avail, available to sin more. That's not how it goes together. In fact, what Paul says is, absolutely not. Not in a million years. Of course not. That is so dumb. That's what Paul's saying. It's crazy. Now, think about this from today. Like, if we were... If we're looking back, like, so they wouldn't have seen Jesus the same way. But for us, if we're thinking about this, like, a good example would be Judas. Would it be wrong for God to judge Judas? Because through Judas, we have Jesus gets, goes to the cross, that Jesus dies for sin, that he, he's buried, 
and he rises again. So Judas got the whole thing going. So God shouldn't judge Judas, right? And you're like, no, 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 no. Judas chose. Like Judas betrayed the Son of God. Well, you, you can't judge Pilate because Pilate, they needed Pilate to like bring this thing together. God can't judge Pilate. He can't judge the Jews who are yelling, crucify him. Like he, yeah, God can because they, they chose to be in that spot. He, still, he, he desires for the wicked to repent. That's still true. But God's right to judge evil, every evil action, because God is always fair and sin is always wrong. God's always fair. Sin is always wrong. And so uh, the modern question that would tie to this is, does the end justify the means? Uh, so in other words, can you do evil so that good, good will come of it? Paul says, absolutely not. Of course not. It's a perversion. We should never sin on behalf of God. We should never do evil on behalf of God. God does not need us to be right and to be fair. He already is those things. And so we should not, the end, we cannot use the end just by the means argument. All right, Paul continues. And this is an extension of the last question. So uh, he ties it all together here in verse 8. He says, And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim that we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. In other words, if my sin shows God holy and glorious, then why shouldn't I sin more? And there's a natural progression here. So he's showing like, let's just keep stringing out the things that you're saying. Uh, The worse I am, the better God looks. So a uh, simple, simple analogy. Uh, I, have, I have my instrument here. So this is, this is a flashlight. It's a phone, but this is also a flashlight. <laughs> uh, now, this is not that bright. Like, it's not that, it's not that impressive. And what the Jews are trying to say, the Jews' argument is, this is not that impressive, God. You don't look that impressive. But if we shut off the lights, we close all the blinds, uh, all of a sudden my flashlight does a pretty adequate job. Like, oh, yeah, that's not bad. And what they're saying is, we want to be the foil. If we're so dark, then you're so good. You're so light. Uh, Everyone needs that light. Duh, this is obvious. (laughs) Uh, It's not obvious. They're wrong. Um, (laughs) uh, It's like this, two two analogies. It's like, uh, should I beat my dog so I can bring it to the vet and show how good the vet is? No, that's crazy. Or, uh, many of you are parents, do you want your kids to be loud uh, annoying, disruptive, come to church and be all those things so that the rest of church can see how incredibly patient you are. <laughs> Man, that guy's so patient. No, no parent thinks that. That's not how, that, that's, it's silly. And that's why Paul says, of course not. Because God's always fair, sin is always wrong. Um, and actually his condemnation here is so strong. Uh, he says, um, uh, the end of verse eight, he says their condemnation is deserved. In other words, they should go to hell. They're so perverse their mind, their condemnation, going to hell, is just deserved. They should go to hell. So strong. Uh, there's another aspect to this, though. So if someone's thinking that, he's like, that's not good. There's another aspect, though, is that they don't just say this, like, Paul's not just drawing it out for them, but he, he sort of changes his tune here, and he says, some people accuse me of this. Uh, he says, some people slanderously claim that we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. And so, in other words, what is Paul attacking? This idea of of God's grace. Uh, He's saying people are trying to pervert the grace of God. Because in in God's law and in in what God has called us to, his desire is that we would be holy and we'd walk with him, we we, would be like him. And even the New Testament, like when someone dies to himself and comes alive in Christ, God's desire is not that they would then rebel and sin more, it's like that they they would exemplify God to the world. It'd be like, oh, 
They're like Christ to others. They're dead to themselves and alive in Christ. Uh, but what Paul's saying is that people are accusing me of saying is that uh, the, the worse that you are, God's grace is seen as better. And so he's going to explain this more in Romans 6. I don't want to talk about it for too long. But he says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can one who died to sin still live in it? Uh, we can't. How does someone who's dead to sin, it's like you're not trying to live in it. You're not embracing sin. God's always fair. Sin is always wrong. And one aspect I, I was appreciative as I thought through this and as I read was uh, a couple of people challenged me in saying, uh, if you're a preacher and no one's ever accused you of saying you talk about grace too highly, you probably don't talk about grace enough. Oh, no one's ever said that to me. My kids certainly do not say that to me. Um, grace is so great. How much grace God has available for us, there's no such thing as outsinning the grace of God. Now, they're, they're, of course, like, I always want to put the caveat, yeah, but like someone has to like really, it's like there's no outsinning the grace. For someone who believes, you cannot outsin the grace of God. He's always there to forgive, and he desires you to walk with him. But his grace is that tremendous. It is that beautiful. And, and that's why Paul says he chose me. So in, in another letter to Timothy, this is how he describes his own conversion. He says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus, my Lord, who strengthened me, because I consider me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. That the grace of our Lord overflowed along with faith and love there in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See, God, he's always just and fair. And so Paul says, I think God chose me that he could show how great his grace was, that it's enough for you. And if you ever feel like, I can't, I can't walk with God, because like, you don't know how many bad things I've done. It's like, no, God does know. And that's why he went to the cross. Paul says, I killed Christians. Have you outdone Paul? And maybe you're like, ah, I did outdo Okay, but God's grace is still sufficient for you. The cross is still enough for you. God is fair. And so even in your life, as you go through things that are hard, and you're thinking, no one else has to go through what I go through. It feels unjust. It's like, well, that is the result of sin. But also you have to know, where, where does the greatest miscarriage of justice lie? Like if you're like, what's the greatest, most heinous act of injustice there ever was? It was us sending Christ to the cross. It was, it was us choosing to send the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, to the cross. And so he's experienced that pain that we wouldn't have to. And so God pours out his wrath on his Son that we would find hope and that we would find life. God is always fair and sin is always wrong. But thanks be to God that we have a loving Savior who would do that on our behalf. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. I thank you that, that you're, you're just and you're merciful. Lord, I thank you that what you want is us. You don't want um, us to, to sign a paper or fly it in or, or just be somewhere. Lord, you want us to, to know you and to walk with you. I pray that that would be the heart of this church, that we would, we would see our need for you. We'd see how good you are. We'd be so thankful for your goodness. We'd be thankful for your grace. We'd be thankful for the cross. And as we're tempted by Satan to, to pervert who you are, that we put you back in the right spot. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. 
that, that you really do work all things for the good of those who love you and called according to your purpose. That, that, you, that you know us more than anyone else knows us and you still love us. We need you today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.